Days of surveillance led police to Christopher Halliwell, a taxi driver who is caught on CCTV picking up Sean. Under the PACE regulations, Steve Fulcher is justified in conducting an urgent interview with Halliwell, away from the police station, because there is a possibility that Sean might still be alive. The suspect leads them to the area he says Sean is in. Then, as Steve is about to take him back to the police station to charge him, Halliwell suggests he has done this before. For the second time in a matter of hours, Steve decided to accept an entirely voluntary confession from Chris Halliwell, who seemed to have offered to take the police to the location of a second murder victim. It was a second very intense drive, from the White Horse at Uffington to another unknown destination. Steve Fulcher did his best to keep everything calm inside the car. He said that he could take me to the exact spot where he'd buried her. So of course I agreed to go with him and took the rest of the surveillance crew and the helicopter. And we drove for about 45 minutes through a route that took us through Lecklade. I remember very little of the route because I was so locked in this, not so much a conversation as a engagement with Christopher, trying to keep him in the moment. He's agreed, it would appear, to take me to another murder victim that he's responsible for, which is an extraordinary offer. But if he changed his mind at any point, of course, all I've got are the words, do you want another one, which is meaningless. Now, I saw my duty quite clearly as recovering the body of that victim, and I've got no question about that, notwithstanding what's happened subsequently. But the tension of holding an individual in that moment is quite extreme. His demeanor veered from crying at various points, asking me for help, but also asking himself why he'd done these things. He showed me a list of girls who, who he has on his phone that um, trust him as their preferred taxi driver. You know, he gave this route which uh, took us to East Leach, to this remote crossroads. When we pulled up, he found a dip in the wall and uh, when we got to the junction, got to the dry stone wall, because I got out, Christopher went over the wall, as did I. I turned around to find Debbie stuck the other side. She was wearing a pencil skirt and stilettos and said, Steve, I can't get over. So we'd come all that way, we'd gone through all that. And at the denouement, she wasn't able to uh, join us to, to the note recording going. As a consequence, there's no transcript for what happened next. But... Here's how Steve described it when he returned to that field. So this was the point at which we came over. And obviously it was, we were 10 metres short because he'd taken the wrong 
dip in the wall. It marked out very precisely number of steps. Literally one foot in front of the other, paste. So somewhere around this kind of point, he said she's under here, the exact spot. He was so precise, I asked my driver to stand on that spot to mark it so he wouldn't miss uh, the precise detail of, of what he'd um, described. The time was very difficult to measure because of the intensity of the experience, but uh, we'd been going some three hours plus, and it must have been around half past two, three o'clock in the afternoon, I suppose. After they moved back to Debbie Peach and she continued her transcript, Halliwell asked to relieve himself. The conversation between him and Fulcher at the time would later come under scrutiny. We had this really strange conversation. It, it, it showed me this, this site and he said uh, that he needs to go and um, relieve himself. So he walked maybe 100 metres over there with me. And um, we just had this very unusual bond at that moment in time. I'd said to him, look at the sky, look at the sky, Chris. And I, I didn't, it sounds on paper like I'm, um, like I'm, uh, being offensive in some way because I'd said look it might be the last time you see it but it wasn't it was part of a very strange moment in time with another individual where he'd admitted to two murders and was likely to spend the rest of his life in prison and it was the light and the, the strange location and the intensity of the moment we'd been through that uh, made me say that and it wasn't on paper it looks like uh, me uh, rubbing it in, as it were. But actually, it was a shared moment between Christopher and myself. Very unusual, very odd. And I said, of course, that we'll get you back to the police station, get you a coffee, and we'll, we'll meet up and have a smoke and a, continue the conversation. And that was the one thing that never happened, not in six years. Okay. He said, Steve, look, I don't want to have to go through this all again. And I said, Chris, you're going to have to. We left the conversation at that. The search for the body began, but it would turn out that Halliwell hadn't quite got his location right. As a consequence, it would prove more difficult than Steve thought to find the body. Of course, he'd taken the wrong dip in the wall. There's another dip in the wall 10 metres further on, which if you mark the same number of steps, you get to the place where we found Becky. The issue was that he'd been very explicit in describing to me a five foot deep grave. So we brought spades out initially. Um, and clearly there's only six inches of topsoil. So we brought a digger out and that broke. And we brought a massive JCB digger out because the direction was, look, he told me it was a five foot deep hole. We'll dig five foot deep. And he described to me how he'd spent all night digging this grave. But of course, she wasn't buried five foot deep. She was buried in a very shallow grave with that six inches of topsoil on her. In Sean's case, however, Halliwell's directions had proven all too accurate. As they were getting into the cars to make the journey back to Gable Cross Police Station, Steve took the call he had been both hoping for and dreading for five days. Sean's body had been found. While Sean's family had been kept in the loop about the arrest, 
like everyone else, they waited for what would happen next. Sean's mother, Elaine, describes what it was like for them. We got told that they'd made an arrest, and then, of course, we knew that it was on the television as well, so um, we got told that. Then I recall it kind of went a little bit quiet for a little while, um, and we were waiting after that, not quite knowing what was going to happen next. And I think, if memory serves me correct, about possibly around two o'clock-ish um, in the afternoon, both liaisons, there were two liaisons in the house, they both left the room and they went outside quite urgently and then they came back in and that's something that's very crystal clear. I can remember exactly where everyone was sat in the room and our liaison that had been with us most of the time was sat down. Another liaison stood up and she just said, we found Sean and she is dead. And that, that was the exact words. I remember that very clearly. With that, obviously, the room sort of just broke down, really, at that point. And that was, yeah, we had to sort of absorb being told that. But yes, it, we were told very straight. Back at the police station, Steve was congratulated by everyone on a job well done. He had apprehended a murderer and found Sean O'Callaghan, plus another body who would, in the fullness of time, be identified as Becky Godden-Edwards, missing for eight years. There was no obvious indication on that day that the investigation had been anything other than an extraordinary success. Steve Fulcher remembers what it was like returning to the police station. This is the perverse thing. So I went back to the police station. I'm fully aware of what consternation must have been occurring in the background. We had the media desperately asking the question, what on earth's been going on for four hours? No doubt, chief constables down, all asking the question, what's going on? When I went back into the police station, there was a line of senior officers who solemnly shook my hand as I went in. Journalist Steve Brody also explains that the outcome was regarded as a success. It was seen as a textbook investigation without a shadow of a doubt. The police were fulsome in their praise for the public, the public response. Uh, police public relations were at an all-time high. Uh, the police were very pleased about that. There were even behind-the-scenes plans uh, to recommend uh, Steve Fulcher for uh, a Queen's Police Medal, a high honour. Uh, and I've seen the recommendations. Nothing could be said better about Steve Fulcher. And that's another supreme irony in this story. There was no, there was no concern about anything. They had got their man. And that added bonus, uh, he was a serial killer. They'd recovered the bodies of two young women. There was no possibility of anything going wrong. With Christopher Halliwell in custody, it was time for Steve to go personally to see Sean's family. I mean, this is where the, bear in mind what I've described, of a period of time from really Saturday afternoon, and we're now on Thursday evening, with a 24-7 commitment of the most extreme nature. I've just come from Halliwell. I'm feeling that sense of, well, an extraordinary, almost surreal sense. I've just been with a, a character for four hours in which he's confessed to two murders and taken me to two 
bodies. I've then got, immediately got to go to Sean, Sean's family and relate to them, you know, empathize as I, I am. I'm part and parcel at that moment in time, part and parcel of their life and explain as I did absolutely everything I knew. The messages are necessarily fairly blunt and brutal. Like, there's no way of sugarcoating the notion that their daughter, who we all hoped we could find alive, has been murdered. It's impossible to imagine how difficult this was for Shan's family, and of course, her boyfriend Kevin, who had first reported her missing. We were told that they'd found Sean, but then there was a time lapse between that and then Steve Fulcher coming into the house. They also, the liaisons that were with Kevin over at his family house, they brought Kevin over to our house so that we would all be together when Steve came in to talk to us. I remember Steve telling us that a special interview had been required. An urgent interview, I can't remember the exact words, he may have said urgent or special, I can't recall which. But that was really about it that I can remember at the time, on, on the day um, he was arrested, that an interview had taken place, an urgent interview had taken place, and that Steve had done that interview. And he clearly looked like he'd been through something when he came into the house. You could see that he was exhausted, that he, you know, he'd worked damn hard on it and that, yeah, it, I'm sure that, you know, I just recall thinking that, I think I did say to him what you'd spoke to Halliwell face to face and he said yes, but not many details at all, really, at that time. And if there were, I wasn't taking them in. Back at Gablecross, Halliwell had been checked into a cell and given a solicitor prior to further questioning by officers on Steve's team. But yet again, in a day where nothing had gone according to plan, Halliwell was about to surprise them. Reporter Rob Murphy and Debbie Peach take up the story. When Halliwell was taken back to the police station, Detectives thought that he would just carry on doing what he'd been doing for the last uh, two hours, confessing, talking, and giving them evidence about what he'd been doing. But when he got taken to Swindon, he got a lawyer. The lawyer's advice was to say nothing, to give no common answers, and that's exactly what happened. So it turned out that um, following Halliwell, confessing to the murder of Sean and showing us the site of a further murder, that he returned to the station. Um, he was duly given all his rights, saw a doctor, look, he was looked after, and actually confessed again to murder interview to the doctor and saw a solicitor. And from that point on, went no comment. To put it mildly, this wasn't what Steve wanted to hear. He knew that the events of the day had been unorthodox, and there might be questions about whether Halliwell's confessions would be admissible evidence in court. He needed Halliwell to repeat them under PACE-compliant conditions. Specifically, Halliwell had been given a copy of Debbie Peach's notes of the day's events and asked to sign it. 
But at the police station, in the presence of a solicitor, Halliwell clammed up. Journalist Steve Brody describes what happened next. It was no comment. He wasn't saying a word. He shut down. Silence. He'd obviously confessed to the killing of Charlotte Callahan. He'd taken Steve Fulcher and his detectives to Uffington where the body was. He had taken him to the site of a second victim. All that went. He did not admit anything else once he was in the presence of his sister. All that conversation, those vital confessions, disappeared of no value. You've only got the word of a policeman and indeed a member of police staff who was taking notes. That disappeared because he didn't repeat any of it. Thus proving, of course, Steve Fulcher's initial thoughts that once he gets out to the police station, we'll get nowhere. He may never have got, even to Sean. He certainly would never have got to the eventual burial place of Becky Gordon Edwards and her family would have never known. And that shocked Steve Fulcher. He couldn't believe it. He'd had this tremendous rapport with this man. He'd persuaded him to take him to two bodies. He'd talked about it. And then silence, leaving the police where they began. You have to have other evidence. The confession was not made in the police station in front of a sister. Halliwell's refusal to cooperate was unexpected, given his full and frank admissions earlier. But as Steve remembers it, he wasn't unduly worried about it at the time. He and senior officers around him assumed that Halliwell's confessions would be brought before a court. That afternoon, Steve held a press conference. He told the press. What I can tell you is that a 47-year-old man uh, from Swindon is in custody, having been arrested for kidnap and two murders. The location of two bodies have been identified to me uh, by this individual, uh, one of whom has yet to be identified formally, but I'm quite clear, is Sean. This innocuous-sounding statement assumes great importance further down the line as well. But for now, Steve had the first precious moments alone to reflect on the course of the investigation. He wasn't plagued with doubt or regret. Well, it was, um, it was a really strange feeling of a mixture of euphoria, um, slight headiness because I hadn't eaten or drunk for a long period of time. I was conscious. Well, I, actually, what I thought was when I went, got back to Swindon Police Station, I was going to find a hanging committee from uh, chief officers demanding to know where I'd been for four hours. But my view was, look, I've got two girls back. That puts us in a better investigative position. Whether or not this is admissible subsequently just isn't the important issue. The important issue is two murdered girls have been found who would otherwise never have been found. Uh, the, the whole issue of pace and admissibility of the information that Christopher had given me was, was always on my mind, but the intensity of that moment, the bond that we'd formed, and the contrition, the tearful contrition that he was demonstrating, meant that I was quite convinced at that moment in time that he would repeat the confession under pace-compliant conditions, and that um, we'd work with him to find out the full extent of his offending, his mitigation, uh, and try to try to help him in the same way that he had helped me to get to 
daughters back to their mothers. This question of admissibility is going to become a big deal in the next episode, so I'm going to leave it for now. More immediately, Swindon went into mourning, responding with grief. Everyone in this story remembers a spontaneous outpouring of emotion and sympathy for the family who had lost a beloved daughter. Steve Brody describes a reaction that is not about points of law, but about the loss of two young women and fury at the man who killed them. Tensions ran pretty high in Swindon over this. A taxi driver. Of all people, a man in a position of trust. Tensions ran high, and indeed when Christopher Hadwell made his first appearance in front of magistrates, there were pretty rowdy scenes outside uh, the magistrates' court. People attempting to bang on the, on the prison van when it arrived, people shouting, people very angry. Uh, they had not got the happy ending that everybody wanted. The ending was pretty awful. This young girl had been kidnapped, sexually assaulted, stabbed in the back of the neck and left in a, in a pit, in a, just out in a wilderness somewhere. Imagine the horror of that. Uh, Wiltshire has its share of murders. It may be a quiet, very picturesque county, but it has had its share. But the Sean O'Callaghan murder was unusual in the response, the intensity of the response. Sean's mother, Elaine, remembers how the story exploded in the media. The public response is one thing that even now is is just been absolutely massive. I, at the time, it was huge. I, I can remember saying, all these people doing all this for Sean, giving up all their time. But because of the type of person Sean was, I could see why people would have picked up on that from just the way Sean was. You know, she was so popular. Lots of people knew her and people who knew people who knew her. And I think somehow her personality resonated with people and people wanted to go and do something to help. Steve Fulcher watched the outpouring of grief for Sean. Well, I think the case affected everybody in Swindon. And, and again, well over 10,000 people turned up to a recognised Sean and, and 10,000 Chinese lanterns went up into the night sky on that Friday evening. A sort of outpouring of grief and uh, community spirit. Uh, it was very moving, very effective. Sean's brother, Liam, wanted to be part of the tribute for his sister and tried to move anonymously through the crowds. I, I did go down to the lantern vigil. I went with a few friends and, and they sort of helped enable me to remain anonymous. So they sort of formed a, a circle so that I could see the lanterns and, and be a part of. And yeah, it was, it was very moving. Again, throughout the, you know, the, the whole week, um, just generally the, the way that the local community responded and the fact that they were willing to do uh, a nice gesture like that uh, meant a lot and it was comforting. It did help, but also was equally as well surreal but was, was um, a, a beautiful gesture from um, the people that organised it, so it did help. Hundreds of bunches of flowers were laid in tribute outside the Suju nightclub where Sean was last seen. 
Her mother Elaine saw the flowers as a sign of respect for her daughter. It gave her a sense of community as their family grieved for Sean. We were told by the police and I could see on television that there were a lot of cards and candles and things going outside the nightclub. I can't remember what night we went up there, but I do remember saying I'd like to see them all before they start taking them down. Um, so I went up there in the car with Liam and Aidan, Sean's younger brother and my partner, and so we, we did go up and see everything laid out outside the nightclub. And again, it was just an amazing sense of that people are wanting to pay their respects to Sean. Makes you aware how much it affected everybody, the whole of Swindon. It felt like the whole of Swindon was feeling this, not just us. Of course, all this time, Steve was keenly aware that there was another family somewhere who had a missing daughter. Once the remains were unearthed, his team were doing everything possible to identify them. On Monday the 4th of April, he was given the results of DNA analysis that had found a match on the police database. The woman Halliwell had buried in a shallow grave was called Becky Godden Edwards. Her mother, Karen Edwards, had been following Sean's story in the media. So then we had the announcement that there was a second body had been found. The next thing we knew, my gut feeling, I said to Charlie, oh my God, I hope that second body's not Becky. I said, I, I really do feel that this don't feel right. I, I really do. I've, I've got a horrible feeling about this. And I spent night after night after night on the sofa Googling, looking on Facebook, looking for names, trying to appeal to people, you know, doing searches. I mean, and I'm not very good on a computer. And I'd spent night after night after night and I'd made myself quite ill. But I would convince myself that that second body was Becky. I was telling everybody, all the family members, they were saying, how can it possibly be Becky? You know, you've had people telling you they've seen her. This girl's been dead for a long time. No, I said, I got a feeling it's Becky. Once the DNA results came back, for the second time in a week, Steve set out to deliver the worst news any parent can imagine. On the 4th of April, I'd been out with my son in the morning because he'd just bought a house and I'd gone round to help him lift some floorboards. And... About two o'clock, I said to him, I think we ought to go home and have a sandwich and a cuppa, because it, it was quite thirsty work. We came home, fortunately, my son was with me. And I'd gone into the kitchen and put the kettle on and we were having a laugh and a joke about a cup of tea and a sandwich. And all of a sudden there was a knock on the front door. Stephen went to answer the door and then he said, Mum, I think you better come to the door. And I remember standing there, I had my pink hunter wellies on and I had a black velvet tracksuit on, never go out underdressed. And I saw the man and I recognised him instantly. 
And I still remember that day as though it was yesterday. It's not something that you forget easily. It was Stephen Fulcher. And as soon as I saw him, I knew and my words to him was, oh my God, it's Becky, isn't it? And he said, yes. He said, Would you, can we come in? And I can't re re really remember a lot more. My brain went into overdrive. I went into a oh, fight or flight mode. I was just beside myself. I didn't know what to do. In what was already a traumatic week for everyone, Steve prepared to sit with another mother whose daughter was brutally taken. Becky had struggled with addiction problems and become estranged from her family before turning to sex work. The media would highlight this, but as far as Steve was concerned, whatever choices Becky had made with her life, no one deserved to die like she had. Steve promised to do whatever he could to protect her dignity. I just remember the, do the front door was open. I think there were dogs barking in the background. And um, when Karen saw me, she just burst into tears because, well, she'd probably seen me on television and knew exactly what I was there for. And um, you know, I spent, I don't know, an hour or two with her and she told the story of Becky's life and the, um, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking story. And all I could promise her was that I would do what I could to preserve the dignity of Becky's memory. So a lot of the criticism I had subsequently around the media handling from that point on. And I'd had the entire press pack, all the, I can't remember the News of the World existed then, but it's certainly The Sun and all these characters, and was saying, look, who's to judge? That could be my daughter or your daughter, and you're wanting to label Becky as, as some kind of pejorative term. That, that's all I could really think of to offer Karen, actually, which was to try to influence the media as best I could to represent Becky as best they could, I suppose. The police offered to do whatever they could to help Becky's family, including taking them to visit Becky's burial site. The police actually offered offered us to go to the field where Becky had been found at East Leach, which we now know is Oxo Bottom Field. I didn't want to go, but I felt I had to go. I had to do it. I had to do it for Becky. At the end of the day, I'm the mother. She's the child. I had to do it. So the family came with us, and I can remember sitting in the family liaison police car and we drove and we drove and we drove and I felt like we were driving forever because I didn't want to be there but I knew I had to be there. It was probably one of the longest drives I've had in my life and they got lost. I can remember it's a very, it's a very windy road. I remember looking around thinking this is an extremely surreal feeling but I can remember looking across this field it was just a vast it, like vast it was like a ready coloured soil I remember it, it 
it was red. It wasn't like soil that you find in the garden. It was, and I remember that red soil and that stuck in my head, that red soil. And I remember looking and I remember seeing some birds and I was there, but I wasn't there. My body was there, but my mind was trying not to focus on why I was there. And they showed us the area and people had placed flowers down there and the police had put a little crucifix on, on the grave or the area. And it was such a surreal feeling. Again, it's a feeling that will stick there forever. It will never go. I hate that field. I hate going there now. I hate the thought that my daughter was let in that field, rotting for eight years. I mean, here we are six years on and I still remember those feelings and emotions, no matter how many times I talk about it. It still hurts. Before Becky's estrangement, the last time Karen had seen her daughter was in December of 2002, almost a decade previously. I dropped her off to her boyfriend's house uh, in Swindon and I left her there for half an hour. I sat in the car, she came back out and asked me if she could stop another half an hour. Yes, I said, and then we're going home. She then came back out to the car and said, Mum, I want to stop here. Well, I was really angry at her. And I said, Becky, you've got to come home. You have to come home. And she said, no, Mum. I said, well, I know what you're doing in there. I said, you're taking drugs again, aren't you? And she said, oh, Mum, I can't keep putting you through this. I'll come home when I'm clean. Well, I was beside myself. I was, I was so, I was angry at her for making that choice, but I knew if I took her home, she would go anyway, because she was very determined. When she had something in her head, that was it. She was focused and she would carry out that mission no matter what it was. So I can remember driving away in floods of tears, but not before. She took the bag out of the boot of the car and I saw this little figure just walking off with a black bin bag in her hand. And I remember, I don't even know how I got home because it was really hard to focus on the road when you're crying. And I got home and I was so angry. But also, you see, she had been told by the courts that she had to come back here. So I was in a catch-22. What do I do? Do I ring the courts? Would they have her re-arrested? This was just before um, her 20th birthday. She was, she was, Becky was 20. Becky was 20 years old when all this happened. Steve was left more determined than ever to see justice done for Becky and her family. In the following weeks, he and his team went to work to build the police case against Halliwell for Becky's murder. They soon made a number of discoveries. Witnesses came forward to say that Halliwell was a regular punter among Swindon's sex workers, several of whom described his behaviour as being aggressive and frightening. 
His medical records revealed that on January 3rd, 2003, Halliwell had been to see his GP with a suspected fractured finger and deep scratches to his face, which he had explained away as the work of a passenger who had attacked him unprovoked. Of course, this was possible, but Steve thought it could also very easily have been connected to the murder. Karen had told him that her daughter was a fighter. More disturbing still was what Halliwell himself said under surveillance in prison. He was on tape telling an associate that the police wanted to interview him about eight murders, not two. Unsurprisingly, this set Steve thinking back over recent events. It didn't occur to me because I, I was so convinced that he was telling me all the truth. It didn't occur to me that there could be other victims at that moment in time. He'd taken me to Sean voluntarily. He'd taken me to Becky voluntarily. And I asked him a number of times, look, Chris, are there any more? Is there anything else you can tell me? And he was quite adamant. Actually, it was only in reading the notes subsequently he never said, no, there aren't any more. What he said was, isn't that enough? Which is quite a big difference. Steve was beginning to think that Halliwell's offending ran much deeper than he knew, and he wanted to pursue this further. But much more police work would be required to learn whether Halliwell could be connected to more cold cases. For Becky, though, the case was quickly becoming more concrete. In May 2011, Halliwell was formally charged with her murder. He would soon be in the dock, charged with killing Sean and Becky in what looked as open and shut a case as you can imagine. But the British justice system was about to spring a big surprise on all concerned. On the next episode of The Detective's Dilemma. His lawyer argued that these charges should be dropped. The fact of his guilt was unequivocal. What he'd done, they're saying, was wrong. The whole reason we were there was losing sight. 